Chapter 12 of Armageddon 2419 A.D. by Philip Francis Nolan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 The Finger of Doom. As we crossed the Hudson River, a few miles north of the city, we dropped several units of the Yellow Intelligence Division with full instrument equipment. Their apparatus cases were nicely balanced at only a few ounces weight each, and the men used their chute capes to ease their drops. We recrossed the river a little distance above and began dropping white intelligence units and a few long and short-range gun units. Then we held our position until we began to get reports. Gradually we ringed the territory of the Sinsings, our observation units working busily and patiently at their locators and scopes, both aloft and aground, until Garland finally turned to me with the remark, The map circle is complete now, boss. We've got clear locations all the way around them. Let me see it, I replied, and studied the illuminated viewplate map with its little overlapping circles of light that indicated spots proved clear of the enemy by ultrascopic observation. I nodded to Bill Hearn. Go ahead now, Hearn, I said, and place your barrage men. He spoke into his ultraphone, and three of the ships began to glide in a wide ring around the enemy territory. Every few seconds, at the word from his unit boss, a gunner would drop off the wire and, slipping the clasp of his chute cape, drift down in the darkness below. Bill formed two lines, parallel to and facing the river, and enclosing the entire territory of the enemy between them. Above and below, straddling the river, were two defensive lines. These latter were merely to hold their positions. The others were to close in towards each other, pushing a high-explosive barrage five miles ahead of them. When the two barrages met, both lines were to switch to short-vision range barrage and continue to close in on any of the enemy who might have drifted through the previous curtain of fire. In the meantime, Bill kept his reserves, a picked corps of a hundred men, the same that had accompanied Hart and myself in our fight with the Han squadron, in the air, divided about equally among the kite-tails of four ships. A final roll-call, by units, companies, divisions, and functions, established the fact that all our forces were in position. No Han activity was reported, and no Han broadcasts indicated any suspicion of our expedition. Nor was there any indication that the Sinsings had any knowledge of the fate in store for them. The idling of rep-ray generators was reported from the center of their camp, obviously those of the ships the Hans had given them, the price of their treason to their race. Again I gave the word, and Hearn passed on the order to his subordinates. Far below us, and several miles to the right and left, the two barrage lines made their appearance. From the great height to which we had risen, they appeared like lines of brilliant winking lights, and the detonations were muffled by the distance into a sort of rumbling distant thunder. Hearn and his assistants were very busy, measuring, calculating, and snapping out ultraphone orders to unit commanders that resulted in the straightening of lines and the closing of gaps in the barrage. The white division boss reported the utmost confusion in the Sinsing organization. They were, as might be expected, an inefficient, loosely disciplined gang, and repeated broadcasts for help to neighboring gangs. Ignoring the fact that the Mongolians had not used explosives for many generations, they nevertheless jumped at the conclusion that they were being raided by the Hans. Their frantic broadcast persisted in this thought, 
despite the nervous electrophonic inquiries of the Hans themselves, to whom the sound of the battle was evidently audible, and who were trying to locate the trouble. At this point, the swooper I had sent south toward the city went into action as a diversion, to keep the Hans at home. Its kite tail, loaded with long-range gunners, using the most highly explosive rockets we had, hung invisible in the darkness of the sky, and bombarded the city from a distance of about five miles. With an entire city to shoot at, and the object of creating as much commotion therein as possible, regardless of actual damage, the gunners had no difficulty in hitting the mark. I could see the glow of the city and the stabbing flashes of exploding rockets. In the end, the Hans, uncertain as to what was going on, fell back on a defensive policy and shot their hell cylinder, or wall of upturned disintegrator rays, into operation. That, of course, ended our bombardment of them. The rays were a perfect defense, disintegrating our rockets as they were reached. If they had not sent out ships before turning on the rays, and if they had had none within sufficient radius already in the air, all would be well. I queried Garland on this, but he assured me yellow intelligence reported no indications of Han ships nearer than 800 miles. This would probably give us a free hand for a while, since most of their instruments recorded only imperfectly or not at all through the death wall. Requisitioning one of the viewplates of the headquarters ship and the services of an expert operator, I instructed him to focus on our lines below. I wanted a close-up of the men in action. He began to manipulate his controls and chaotic shadows moved rapidly across the plate, fading in and out of focus until he reached an adjustment that gave me a picture of the forest floor, apparently a hundred feet wide, with the intervening branches and foliage of the trees appearing like shadows that melted into reality a few feet above the ground. I watched one man setting up his long gun with skillful speed. His lips pursed slightly, as though he were whistling, as he adjusted the tall tripod on which the long tube was balanced. Swiftly he twirled the knobs controlling the aim and elevation of his piece. Then, lifting a belt of ammunition from the big box, which itself looked heavy enough to break down the spindly tripod, he inserted the end of it in the lock of his tube and touched the proper combination of buttons. Then he stepped aside and occupied himself with peering carefully through the trees ahead. Not even a tremor shook the tube, but I knew that at intervals of something less than a second, it was discharging small projectiles which, traveling under their own continuously reduced power, were arching into the air to fall precisely five miles ahead and explode with the force of aided shells, such as we use in the First World War. Another gunner, fifty feet to the right of him, waved a hand and called out something to him. Then, picking up his own tube and tripod, he gauged the distance between the trees ahead of him and the height of their lowest branches, and, bending forward a bit, flexed his muscles and leaped lightly, some twenty-five feet. Another leap took him another twenty feet or so, where he began to set up his piece. I ordered my observer then to switch to the barrage itself. He got a close focus on it, but this showed little except a continuous series of blinding flashes, which, from the viewplate, lit up the entire interior of the ship. An eight-hundred-foot focus proved better. I had thought that some of our French and American artillery of the twentieth century had achieved the ultimate in mathematical precision of fire, but I had never seen anything to equal the accuracy of that line of terrific explosions as it moved steadily forward, 
mowing down trees as a scythe cuts grass, or used to five hundred years ago, literally churning up the earth and the splintered blasted remains of the forest giants to a depth of some ten to twenty feet. By now the two curtains of fire were nearing each other, lines of vibrant, shimmering, continuous, brilliant destruction, inevitably squeezing the panic-stricken sensings between them. Even as I watched, a group of them, who had been making a futile effort to get their three rep-ray machines into the air, abandoned their efforts and rushed forth into the milling mob. I queried the control boss sharply on the futility of this attempt of theirs, and learned that the Hans, apparently in doubt as to what was going on, had continued to play safe and broken off their power broadcast, after ordering all their own ships east of the Alleghenies to the ground, for fear these ships they had traded to the Sinsings might be used against them. Again I turned to my viewplate, which was still focused on the central section of the Sinsing works. The confusion of the traders was entirely that of fear, for our barrage had not yet reached them. Some of them set up their long-range guns and fired at random over the barrage line, then gave it up. They realized that they had no target to shoot at, no way of knowing whether our gunners were a few hundred feet or several miles beyond it. Their ultraphone men, of whom they did not have many, stood around in tense attitudes, their helmet phones strapped around their ears, nervously fingering the tuning controls at their belts. Unquestionably, they must have located some of our frequencies, and overheard many of our reports and orders, but they were confused and disorganized. If they had an ultraphone boss, they evidently were not reporting to him in an organized way. They were beginning to draw back now before our advancing fire. With intermittent desperation, they began to shoot over our barrage again, and the explosions of their rockets flashed at widely scattered points beyond. A few took distance pot shots. Oddly enough, it was our own forces that suffered the first casualties in the battle. Some of these distance shots by chance registered hits, while our men were under strict orders not to exceed their barrage distances. Seen upon the ultrascope viewplate, the battle looked as though it were being fought in daylight, perhaps on a cloudy day, while the explosions of the rockets appeared as flashes of extra brilliance. The two barrage lines were not more than 500 feet apart when the Sinsings resorted to tactics we had not foreseen. We noticed first that they began to lighten themselves by throwing away extra equipment. A few of them in their excitement threw too much away and shot suddenly into the air. Then a scattering few floated up gently, followed by increasing numbers, while still others, preserving a weight balance, jumped toward the closing barrage and leaped high, hoping to clear them. Some succeeded. We saw others blown about like leaves in a windstorm to crumple and drift slowly down, or else to fall into the barrage, their belts blown from their bodies. However, it was not part of our plan to allow a single one of them to escape and find his way to the Hans. I quickly passed the word to Bill Hearn to have the alternate men in his line raise their barrages and heard him bark out a mathematical formula to the unit bosses. We backed off our ships as the explosions climbed into the air in stagger formation until they reached a height of three miles. I don't believe any of the Sinsings who tried to float away to freedom succeeded. But we did know later that a few who leaped the barrage got away and ultimately reached New York. It was those who managed to jump the barrage who gave us the most trouble. With half of our long guns turned aloft, I foresaw we would not have enough to establish successive ground barrages, 
and so ordered the barrage back two miles, from which positions our curtains began to close in again, this time, however, gauged to explode not on contact, but thirty feet in the air. This left little chance for the Sinsings to leap either over or under it. Gradually the two barrages approached each other until they finally met, and in the gray dawn the battle ended. Our own casualties amounted to forty-seven men in the ground forces, eighteen of whom had been slain in hand-to-hand -hand fighting with the few of the enemy who managed to reach our lines, and sixty-two in the crew and kite-tail forces of Swooper Number 4, which had been located by one of the enemy's ultrascopes and brought down with long-range fire. Since nearly every member of the Sinsing gang had, so far as we knew, been killed, we considered the raid a great success. It had, however, a far greater significance than this. To all of us who took part in the expedition, the effectiveness of our barrage tactics definitely established a confidence in our ability to overcome the Hans. As I pointed out to Wilma, it has been my belief all along, dear, that the American explosive rocket is a far more efficient weapon than the disintegrator ray of the Hans, once we can train all our gangs to use it systematically and in coordinated fashion. As a weapon in the hands of a single individual, shooting at a mark in direct line of vision, the rocket gun is inferior in destructive power to the disray, except as its range may be a little greater. The trouble is that, to date, it has been used only as we used our rifles and shotguns in the twentieth century. The possibilities of its use as artillery, in laying barrages that advance along the ground or climb into the air, are tremendous. The disray inevitably reveals its source of emanation. The rocket gun does not. The disray can reach its target only in a straight line. The rocket may be made to travel in an arc over intervening obstacles to an unseen target. Nor must we forget that our Ultronists now are promising us a perfect shield against the disray in inertron. I tremble, Tony dear, when I think of the horrors that are ahead of us. The Hans are clever. They will develop defenses against our new tactics, and they are sure to mass against us not only the full force of their power in America, but the united forces of the world empire. They are a cowardly race in one sense, but clever as the very devils in hell, and inheritors of a calm, ruthless, vicious persistency. Nevertheless, I prophesied, the finger of doom points squarely at them today, and unless you and I are killed in the struggle, we shall live to see America blast the yellow blight from the face of the earth. End of chapter 12 Recording by Alan Winteroud Audio.boomcoach.com End of Armageddon 2419 A.D. by Philip Francis Nolan.